Welcome to Getting Through It, where we're here to help you get through it. I'm John Bwery, and as always, I'm with someone who once read Paper Seismograms, Dr. Lucy Jones. We thank our individual supporters who help underwrite the work of the Dr. Lucy Jones Center for Science and Society through Patreon. Would you consider sponsoring this podcast for as little as $5 per month? Because your support enables us to serve even more communities. Again, simply go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and search Dr. Lucy Jones to make your donation. Now let's get to it. We have spent countless episodes talking about earthquakes and what we know about them here on Getting Through It. We can tell you the size, location, duration, impacts, etc., etc., etc. So how do we know what just happened after the Earth stopped shaking? That's the question we often get. It's all about the instruments that measure what is happening sometimes many, many miles below the surface. Today, that's computers and processors that are so fast, they can tell you an earthquake is going to reach you, the shaking is going to reach you before you actually feel it. But it didn't start out that way. As a seismologist, Lucy, you use these tools to study earthquakes because that's what seismologists do. That's right. People often think that a seismologist is a scientist that studies earthquakes, and that's actually not the case. Some seismologists study earthquakes and some don't. And there are many other types of scientists that study earthquakes. Geodesists, earthquake engineers, earthquake geologists. I could keep going. And I know you will, but I'm going to stop you there. (laughs) Right. Thought so. The actual definition of a seismologist is someone who studies seismograms. The center of our science are those records of how the ground moves, the waves passing through the earth. Some seismologists, like myself, use those waves to study the earthquakes that made them, but others use the waves to study the rock that the waves pass through. But a scientist without a seismogram is not a seismologist. So seismograms make the seismologists. When did seismologists first exist then? When did they start looking at seismograms, even in some early form? The earliest instruments we probably now call seismoscopes because they just showed you that the ground moved and didn't have a lot of time in it. And those were developed in the 19th century in a variety of ways. Essentially a pendulum that would tend to stay where it was when the earth started to move the instrument around it. Now, a guy named John Milne went to Japan in 1875. He was an engineering geologist, started feeling earthquakes, thought about how to record them, and he came up with the first continuous recording of ground motions in the 1880s. Because they were based around pendulums, there was always a predominant frequency connected to the length of the pendulum that affected the records. And now you brought up one of your favorite words, frequency. What about frequency? What is it that matters here? Remember, earthquakes put out waves at many different frequencies, and the long wavelengths tend to travel farther than the short wavelengths. So when you're recording the movement from an earthquake on the other side of the world, it'll all be long wavelengths. But when you're looking at a small earthquake nearby, it'll all be short wavelengths. And the problem is that an instrument couldn't look at all of them at the same time because of something that we call the microseism. You put a seismograph out anywhere in the world and you're gonna see significant noise, ground motion going on all the time, around a period of six seconds. We now know that it's from the ocean waves pounding the coasts, but it's just there on every record. So we wanted to be able to look at long periods, 10, 20, 30 seconds for the distant earthquakes. And we wanted to look at short periods, one second or less for the nearby earthquakes, but we couldn't do them with the same instrument. It was identified that you actually needed more than one type of instrument to record the various types of frequencies, in quotes, right, that you say, that come from earthquakes. 
Right. So the earliest ones, Milne's original instruments, were all long period instruments. Some of them had these pendulums that would be like 20 feet long. And when Milne left Japan in the 1890s, he started putting them out in different parts of the world. In fact, he did quite a bit with the Jesuits because Jesuits, after being reestablished in the 19th century, set up observatories in their monasteries around the world. They were originally for astronomy, but when they we started realizing that waves from distant earthquakes could be seen around the world, they put in seismology at all of these observatories. And it's one of the great early records set. So those are the long period ones. But then the first significant short period instrument to look at small earthquakes was developed here in California by a guy named Harry Wood. They're now called Wood Andersons. So all these instruments somehow turned ground moving into a line on a piece of paper, or was it even a piece of paper? Right, all the early instruments had some sort of paper covered drum. The drum would rotate, the needle from the seismogram stays in one place, the paper rotates past it, and now you've got a record, once you know the speed at which the drum's moving, of the time of the arrivals of all these different types of motions. The Wood Anderson instruments recorded on photographic paper with a light beam that was connected to the pendulum, you had to keep it really dark. When I worked in Afghanistan in 1976, we used paper that had been covered in smoke from a paraffin lamp. And the seismograph pen, if you will, was actually a needle that scratched off the smoke. We got a thinner line and therefore more accuracy to read the seismogram than if we were working with ink. Other reasons for scratching it away, we once had a seismogram rather damaged by an ant that got caught within the box and traveled all over our paper while it was supposed to be recording. I think that's sort of one of those classic images, not the ant rolling, but rather the seismologist reading from a paper drum, right? The rolling drum with paper in front of it. It's an iconic image of you doing your work. In fact, so much so that oftentimes when people in the media ask for, you know, can we get a picture of Lucy doing her work? They don't recognize that you're actually sitting at a computer doing your work now and not hovering over paper. And it really, as an aside, it really makes me laugh when they're like, isn't she out with like a hammer looking at rocks? And that's not really what a seismologist does either. <laughs> No, I did do a little field work as a graduate student, but seismologists look at paper or now computers. And that's the big issue. Those drums are technology that's over 100 years old, and we really did stop using them many decades ago. The computer revolution revolutionized seismology. And in the 1970s, we started, we did our first switch towards moving off of these paper or photographic records and digitizing the data and putting it in through a computer. It took us a couple of decades to completely wean ourselves off of those paper records. By the early 1990s, we weren't using them at all, but we had left them in the media center because the media kept on asking for them. Finally, after another decade or so, where the only thing they were willing to show were those paper records that we weren't using, we finally threw them out because we got tired of being represented as such an antiquated science. And the funny thing is there's still media outlets here in Southern California, television stations that have their own drum with a needle so they can show it moving when there's an earthquake as a visual. Yeah, it's a great visual. It's also lousy resolution. Computerization completely changed our science. We can now have just one really high quality instrument that's broadband that looks at all the frequencies and we filter out the microseism. Or we can record the microseism and use it to study how noise transfers through the earth. And there's a whole bunch of research you can do with that. And it gives us such wonderful dynamic range. I mean, on a piece of paper, you're limited by how far that needle could move and how thick the line is you were drawing. 
Now we can have, using high resolution digitization, we can see everything from the smallest earthquakes to the largest ones that we want to record. And that's more than a factor of a billion in how much the ground moves. And now we can resolve all of that with just one instrument. And we have it all in digital form of more relevance perhaps to the general public, these records are all now processed automatically. As you said at the beginning, I've read paper records, which means literally measuring with a ruler the time and size of the earthquake motions. For the Whittier Narrows earthquake in 1987, we had to run to the lab, pull out our rulers and measure the ink to be able to give information an hour after the earthquake to the media that showed up to report on it. Now, a computer does all of that, correlates the different readings into earthquakes. An algorithm called an associator decides whether the movements are coming from one earthquake recorded in a lot of places or perhaps multiple earthquakes close in time. And so it's pretty complicated work, actually. We've been evolving these systems. And now instead of an hour later giving you an approximate magnitude, we have the most accurate ones possible, usually within just a few minutes. It's kind of amazing to see how far you've come in merely a century, right? Maybe 150 years from this pendulum swinging to computers that do the work essentially for you. Now, I know that there is a human intervention with the computers, making sure that on the biggest ones that they've been reviewed by a human. Isn't that what the phrase is, reviewed by a human? But what does it mean? Our listeners now have this information about the instrumentation changes, but what does that mean in terms of how we understand earthquakes? Well, remember that we are still fundamentally measuring a wave traveling from the earthquake and doing a calculation to figure out where that earthquake must have been and how big to have produced the patterns of waves that we see. Mostly that goes really well. These are automated systems and you know, they're gigo systems, garbage in, garbage out, just like anyone else. If there's just one earthquake, it's usually pretty clear. Sometimes a big enough earthquake the associator will get confused and it'll show up as multiple earthquakes. So a very common thing we see that I'd like to warn people about, wow, there were two earthquakes at the same time. No, there's probably one earthquake that the computer messed up and split into two events. We talk about split events all the time. And the biggest earthquakes, those very first locations are more likely to have problems because the ground is now moving much more than it normally does and the system can get confused with it. And of course, the last piece, remember that when we again have a big earthquake, which we really haven't had in most of the internet era, some of our communication may get disrupted. All of those different sensors are spread across California and are brought back in through a variety of telephone and internet connections. If the internet's disrupted, we're going to lose a lot of data. The original location might very well be inaccurate. There is going to be the need for those humans to come in and review and make sure about what we're really seeing. You have come a long way, and I think that I'm excited to see what's next in the technology used to measure and understand earthquakes, whether through the instrumentation we're talking about today or other ways that we can better understand what the earth is doing so we can all get through it a little better together. So we'll leave it there for now. And until next time, I'm John Buery with Dr. Lucy Jones and you, Getting Through It. Getting Through It is a production of the Dr. Lucy Jones Center for Science and Society. Visit us online to get past shows and become a supporter at patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com and search Dr. Lucy Jones to make your donation. Our music is performed by Josh Lee and this closing music is written by our own Dr. Lucy Jones. 